What's going on, Charles? Bless you, Lord. Amen. We had fun, amen? Who enjoys worship in the Lord? I said, who enjoys worship in the Lord? Amen. He's worthy to be praised. The world should never outdo the church. They should never write better songs. They should never have better musicians because we have the anointing. And that's something that the world can't replicate. You got to understand the anointing of God is what makes everything the church does incredible. It's not us. It's him. Amen. For those of you who aren't saying anything, you're not buying what I'm selling, get your Bibles out. We are in Matthew tonight, chapters 24 and 25. We finished up a little series in Matthew, and I felt the Lord, as we finished up the kingdom parables there, felt the Lord just leading me and looked at chapter 24 and 25. I want to preach through both of those chapters. Uh, There's a lot going on in there, but we're going to look at chapter 24 tonight. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we'll jump in it, but let's thank God for the word, and I'll give you a little introduction. Father, tonight we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come together in the middle of the week as brothers and sisters, no matter what has occurred in the days that have went from Sunday till now, Lord, we we are thankful we can be together again and get a booster, Lord, and and have you just uh, refresh us, Lord God. So, Father, I pray that the worship refreshed us tonight as we presented our bodies living sacrifices to you, Lord, and Uh, Lord, I pray that the word refreshes us tonight. So Holy Spirit, open up our eyes and illuminate truth to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus continues to give his disciples insight into the kingdom of God. Now, you can't help but stumble into things about the kingdom of God as you read the New Testament, as you read, uh, you know, the gospels, as you listen to the words of Jesus. So, here we see more about the kingdom of God, and we got a good uh, seven kingdom parables. We're understanding we are in this world, but not of it. Our kingdom is a different kingdom. Be careful how much you invest in this life, amen. I heard uh, someone on the radio today, a preacher, talking about the fact that you can't take money with you, but you could sow it into kingdom things so that those treasures meet you in heaven. You know, and and it excited my spirit to hear that. Though I knew it, I needed to be reminded of it because we uh, we can take what we have here and invest it in the kingdom, and that's in souls, amen? So more kingdom parables, more of teaches... Uh, Jesus teaching we're going to see some predictive prophecy in verse uh, chapter 24 we're going to see details about the tribulation and the second coming of Christ as well as more kingdom principles and parables now chapter 25 of Matthew is 46 verses and it's it's three parables and it's three kingdom parables when we get to Matthew 25 we're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins the parable of the talents and the parable of the judgment Some call the parable of judgment the parable of the sheep and the goats. If you like sheep and goats and that helps you remember, maybe you know some sheep, maybe you know some goats, but that parable is important for us. So when we get to 25, it'll be three parables all about the kingdom and giving us insight. But let's jump into 24 here. Now, uh, before I read you these four verses, I want to say something uh, about the prophetic because we're going to we're going to dig into some of the prophetic things that Jesus said here now the predictive prophecy in scripture will 
always happen on three levels of fulfillment. Whenever there's prophecy in Scripture, almost all the time, not every time, but almost all the time, you're going to see that they have fulfillments in the past, in the present, and the future. When the prophet said something in the Old Testament, it could pertain to some things that happened in Israel before, what was going to happen in Israel's present, and things that are going to happen in the future as Jesus returns. The book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, those prophetic things said to Israel, yet some of them have not come to pass yet because they're going to come to pass in the last days. So understand the nature of the prophetic. It, it, it has different levels of fulfillment. We're going to see Jesus foretells of some things that are fulfilled in the lifetime of his disciples, but they also have future fulfillments. And that points to the fact that prophecy is multidimensional, and that's why it has multiple fulfillments. It's, multi, it's multidimensional in the sense that, you know, it can have a future, present, and a past uh, application. So it's important for us to understand that as Jesus is talking, because he says some things to disciples, and you're saying, hey, that didn't happen in their lifetime. No, but that was for the future. And then some things that he did say absolutely happened in their lifetime as we're going to look at the destruction of the temple, and they are also going to happen in the end times. So that's why I say the prophetic is multidimensional. It's not like a flat piece of paper. It's more like a diamond with different facets. Are you getting that? So it's also important to understand that when we are talking about end time things, eschatology, that there are a few very specific groups that are mentioned in biblical prophecy. There's the church. There's the nation of Israel, there's the lost, and during the seven-year tribulation, there are the tribulation saints. Now, these prophetic things speak to all of those groups. What Jesus says to the church does not apply to Israel. What Jesus says to Israel does not apply to the church. We are different entities with different destinies. People get in trouble trying to interpret the prophetic when they don't understand the groups that are being spoken to. The things that are spoken to the tribulation saints are not for the church because the church is gone at that point. So understand there's specific groups. And we're going to try and discern what group Jesus is talking to because that's the only way we can really apply what he's talking about. Now, did you follow me out there? You're Bible scholars, right? Some of your mouths are hanging open, but... We're going to jump in here. Matthew 24 starts off, and I'm going to read it to you, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you see all of these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, and that shall not be thrown down. Verse 3, now... As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and deceive many. So for this week, let's just stop right there. Uh, and unpack all of what we just read. Now, we talked about the prophetic and the multidimensional nature of it and the multiple fulfillments of it, and right away we start off in uh, verse 1 of chapter 24 with Jesus foretelling of the destruction of the temple in verses 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus sparred with the religious leaders in John 2, Jesus used his imminent death at their hands as a metaphor for the destruction of the temple. He said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. And they laughed at him. They're like, you know how long it took to build this temple? 
you know, the union contractors and the laborers and the permits we had to get. It's good to laugh, people. Wake up on Wednesday, right? And they're saying, there's no way. You, you can't destroy it. But Jesus was not talking about the literal physical temple. And then again, them being blind, they didn't get it. He was talking about his body, his temple, and they were going to crucify him. And he said, crucify me, and I'll raise this temple up in three days. Now, they didn't understand what he was talking about then. And, and, you know, his disciples heard what he said, and they would understand later on. But understand, Jesus is being prophetic here. He's using a metaphor. He's talking about something, uh, uh, the destruction of a temple, and it's his literal body. Now, the discussion Jesus has with his disciples here in verses 1 and 2 is not a metaphor. He is telling them literally the physical temple that they see here in Jerusalem will be destroyed. And this is a powerful, powerful thing to say to a Jewish audience. Why? Because to the Jews, the temple was of the utmost importance. It was the epicenter of Jewish worship and cultural expression. It was the epicenter of national pride. Threatening its destruction would get everyone's attention. It would be very sensitive to the Jewish listener when you're saying this temple is going to be destroyed. They'd had a temple destroyed already in the past, and, and it was still a sore spot with them. Now, uh, it would be like telling us that, hey, America, an invading army is going to come in and it's going to demolish the White House and St. Patrick's Cathedral and build heathen temples in its place. How would that make you feel? A little irate as an American, a little irate as a Christian. And so he had gotten their attention with this temple talk just as he did with the Pharisees. Now, Jesus' prophetic warning would literally excuse me, come to pass 40 years later in 70 AD. If you're writing notes down tonight, write down that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus prophesied of it. On August 10th, 70 AD, the ninth of the Jewish month of the same exact day that the king of Babylon burned Solomon's temple in 586 BC, the newly renovated temple of Herod was burned to the ground along with the city by the Roman general Titus following a Jewish revolt in 66 AD. So some literal historical things that happened. Jesus puts his hand on the temple. They're all looking at it. It's the epicenter of Jewish everything. It's their national pride. But he says it's going to be destroyed. 40 years later, it is destroyed. And so there's some predictive prophecy that Jesus gives here. It really stirs up, you know, his disciples. Titus burned Jerusalem to the ground. He burned the temple to the ground. And not literally one stone was left upon another. Now, in the next verse, Jesus tells his disciples many things that would happen in the end times. And I want you to understand the reason he did tell them this. He, he says, and Jesus said to him, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall be uh, not thrown down. Then he says, now they sat in the Mount of Olives. It's later. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and when the signs of your coming of the end of the age. So Jesus tells them the answer to that question. And I want you to get this very spiritual reason because they asked. What does the Bible say? We have not because we ask not. 
How many things do we complain about that we don't have, blessings we don't have, freedoms we don't have, liberties we don't have, breakthroughs we don't have that we don't pray about? I'm, and I'm as guilty as anyone. I'm not pointing my finger at anyone. Do you know when you point your finger at someone, you got three fingers pointing back at you? You know, it's me. It's me. I need to dig in. I need to pray. I need to ask more than I complain. Someone say amen. And so he answers some of these questions here, and he gives them amazing insight and detail uh, to their benefit and to ours just because they asked him. Now, we, we might be amazed what the Lord reveals to us if we ask. But I guarantee this, he won't reveal anything to anyone who won't ask. Because we we're not motivated enough to ask, why should he cast the pearls of his illuminated revelation to us if we're not even interested in it? If we're more interested in what we're doing that weekend or what we're doing today or what we're going to buy on Amazon. And we're not, you know, we're not seeking God. We're not pushing into God. We're not behind the veil in the secret place digging to get something from God. And that's what it sounds like. Help us, Lord. Make us hungry. Make us thirsty. Make us desperate, God. We might be amazed at what the Lord reveals when we ask. So they ask. The worst thing that can happen when we ask is that Jesus refuses to tell us some things we don't get to know, some timing, some execution. Some of those things are just in the Father's hand, but that's the worst that could happen is we, we don't get an answer. But he could reveal to us precious things. So we've got to ask. Now, verse 3 chronicles the disciples' question, and they want to know when Jesus will return and what the signs of his coming will be. What signs are going to precede your coming? Now, the disciples had heard Jesus talk about his death, his resurrection, and his second coming many times, and they were a little slow to believe at first. A lot of us, you know, it took a while sitting in church. It took a while hearing the word. It took hearing scriptures over and over again before the light came on. Can anyone say amen? So we can't be too hard on the disciples. Some of us are still clueless. The light is not on. But, you know, praise God we're here and we're open and, and someday the light's going to go on. I believe the more intensely and sincerely we seek, the more he shows us. But these guys were slow to believe, and he, he had said, you know, I'm going to crucify me, and they're like, no, and Peter's saying no, and, you know, and, they, and, I, and I'm going to rise again on the third day, and they're not listening. They don't want to hear it. They're like, la, 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 I don't want to hear this. Don't say that stuff, Lord. You're scaring us. But they had heard enough time about these things that they were beginning to believe, and after the resurrection and after Jesus appeared to them, it galvanized everything he said, and they believed it with every fiber of their being. And so should we. You say, but we don't see what they see. Blessed are those who believe and did not see, amen? That's us. When we just believe the word because it says so, and we know this is God's word, and we believe it, and we mix it with faith, amen? To the world, that's crazy. To the Christian, it's what causes us uh, to have joy and peace and growth and to be able to face tomorrow without fear. So they ask, he answers. They want to know when he'll return and what the signs will be. So, you know, they believed he was coming. In fact, if you look in the New Testament and book of Acts, it's absolutely part of the uh, apostles' doctrine, the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
almost every contemporary Christian denomination, I searched and I looked through uh, statements of faith and belief. I couldn't find any Christian church that didn't believe in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ as the second coming. In fact, most of the cults, including the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and a lot of the other big ones, they also believe in a second coming. So the second coming is a universal thing, especially in Christianity. Uh, every group that I could find, if you can find one that doesn't believe in it, let me know, because I'm real curious, but it's a part of all the teaching of the church and some of the cults. Now, notice the disciples want to know what the signs will be at, and, and, and at the end of the age. So they kind of indicate that they understand that Jesus will return at the end of the church age. They don't know when that's going to be, uh, but they, they understand some of that structure there. But they want to know what the signs will be. Now, signs were always important to God's people. Signs were always important to the Jews. Remember, the signs of the coming Messiah. There was a light, and the shepherds came, and the wise men, and all these things. You know, signs were part of how God related to his people. And it's okay to ask God what the signs are. But it's not okay to be a sign seeker. You know, when you're a sign seeker, it's there, oh, well, I want to see this, and I want to see that, and I won't do this until you do that, and I'm going to put out a fleece, and unless you answer me. Now, it's okay to, to ask God questions. It's okay to look for the signs, but it's not good to be a sign seeker. People who are sign seekers and the religious power brokers of the day that sparred with Jesus were, they, they didn't have faith in God. They wanted God to constantly prove himself to them, and that was not a good thing. Listen to what's said in Matthew 16, 1 through 4. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up, and putting Jesus to the test, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you are unable to discern the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation wants a sign, and so a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So these guys wanted a sign. They wanted Jesus to prove himself. They wanted him to, you know, do a little magic trick for them so that they could believe. And he said, you know what? No sign for you. In fact, the only sign that this generation will get is the sign of Jonah. What happened to Jonah? He was swallowed up by the great fish. He was taken down into Sheol, right? All that thing, Jesus was swallowed up by death. He, he went down and liberated captivity. Come on, death, hell, and the grave. Come on. He said, I'm going to give you that sign. They, they didn't understand it, but he said, that's the only sign you're going to get, and you're not going to understand it because you have the wrong heart. You're sign seekers. We've got to be careful that we don't become sign seekers. Amen. Oh, pastor, we could never be like that. There's people who run around from church to church, meeting to meeting, conference to conference, chasing this and chasing that, looking for the next big thing, the next sign, the next, and, and it's not healthy. And they never stay anywhere long enough to get planted and they become a little flaky because a lot of these things are smoke and mirrors and gimmicks. Stay where you're planted, dig into God and grow. Amen. So, you know, like the soup Nazi, no sign for you. That's what he said. So verse 14 through 12 lists nine signs. We're not going to cover them all tonight. Don't get scared. But nine signs that will indicate that the return of Christ is imminent. 
Now, many of the signs listed have been commonplace occurrences throughout history. You know, we're going to look at wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine and earthquakes and all these things. And, you know, these things have always happened throughout history, amen? You know, we, we have volcanoes erupting now. We have earthquakes going on. We have wars. Since human history has been recorded, there has barely been a season where there was not war someplace in the world. So you say, well, how are we going to know, you know, if these are the signs? How are we going to know, you know, what it is? Well, I believe and most scholars agree that the fact is the frequency and the intensity of these things will increase to the point where they're all happening simultaneously. And the intensity of that and the increased frequency and tempo of these things are going to suggest something to the world. We've never been in a season like this where war is everywhere and earthquakes are everywhere and famine and pestilence and all these things are breaking out simultaneously and intensely at the same time, where it's going to get everybody's attention and people are going to know. You know there's already people, secular people, lost people that come up to me and say, you know, what's going on in the world? It's crazy. This, this is, is this the end times? Are these the last days? You know, these are not even Christian people. And one guy's going to me, it's got to be something. It's never, it's never been crazy like this before. And I'm like, buckle up, buttercup. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. But you better get Jesus in your heart because without Jesus, you know what? These signs will be so overwhelming and devastating to people that the, the Bible says men's hearts will fail for fear. Woo. Look at that. I almost had sound effects. So... The frequency and the intensity of these nine signs will, you know, remove every doubt from everybody's mind that God is trying to get our attention. Now, in verse 4, Jesus answers their question, and he begins his response with a warning. He said, take heed that no one deceives you. Say deceive. Deception will be a huge problem in the last days. Deception is a huge problem these days, but incrementally, it's going to get worse. And so he said, take heed that no one deceives you. That's the first thing before he sells any signs. He's like, guys, you got to guard against deception. Deception will be a huge problem in the last days before the Messiah returns, before Jesus returns. There's going to be a great falling away. There's going to be the, the revealing of the man of perdition, the Antichrist. There's going to be all kinds of shaking. You're going to have these nine signs occurring. Now, deception will be the number one thing that causes people to disbelieve. Let me say some things about deception. People who don't know the word of God are the easiest people to deceive. People that don't know the word of God. Oh, I sit in church. Oh, I carry a Bible, but I don't spend 10 seconds in it a day. I don't, I'm not in the scripture. I don't do a systematic study. I do a little here, a little there. I don't read through complete books. There's books I don't read. I don't want to know who begat, who begat, you begat, I begat. Oh, that's boring. We're going to skip over all that. You see, people who don't know the complete word of God are the easiest to deceive. Why? Because if you don't know the truth, you might fall for a lie. So get your Bible open and get in it every day and get massive amounts of the word in you. Amen. People who don't walk in the spirit of God are the easiest to deceive. We didn't get saved to stay in the flesh. We didn't get saved so we could see how close we could live to the world and still go to heaven. We got saved 
to come out of the world and be separate from the world and be full of the spirit of the living God, amen, to walk in resurrection power. And now, all of us, no matter how much we're walking in the spirit, there's more of the spirit for us. So no one could say, well, I got this walking in the spirit thing down. Just watch me. This is going to be good. You might want to record this. No, all of us can get closer to Jesus, amen. I got flesh that needs to be nailed to the cross and killed every day. I'm sure you do. And, and there's flesh in me that wants to act out and speak out. Do you ever, do you, ever you know, get incited by something and start us talk and you're thinking that you're listening to what's coming out of your mouth and it's like, man, that's not good. You know, I put the news on at home, and I'm in the other room, and my wife hears me yelling at the TV, you lying devil, that's the lie, what you just, and then she's like, are you okay in there, you know? <laughs> but we can get stirred up, anybody? And so we can always walk more in the Spirit no matter how much we are. You say, well, how do you walk in the Spirit? Well, you're in the Word, you're in prayer, uh, you're crucifying your flesh, and you're monitoring the output of your life, and you're constantly inviting the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you. So people who don't know the Word are easy to deceive. People who don't walk in the Spirit are easy to deceive. Deceive people who don't want to suffer or stand firm for the truth are easy to deceive. You know, if people have categorically said, I'm not suffering, I'm not going through any hardship, I'm not going to face anything with courage, I'm a coward, I want the easy way out, and uh, that's just it. You know, then when hardship comes, when, you know, when trial comes and they just shrink back, they'll settle for any answer to avoid hardship. They'll bow the knee to anything to avoid pain. To be a Christian takes guts. To be a Christian takes a backbone. In a world that is spineless, that will do and say whatever it takes to get the ease and the payoff and the admiration of others, Christians need to be able to be willing to suffer. Some people in the great falling away are going to fall away from following God just because they don't want to go through any hardship. Oh, I'm not signing up for that. Well, it's quiet tonight. People who have wrong motives about serving God are the easiest to deceive. Well, I'm not supposed to suffer. I'm not supposed to go through hardship. I'm supposed to be blessed all the time. I'm supposed to be happy all the time. I'm supposed to have a full wallet and a full belly. And what you're asking me to do is not what I signed up for. Mm. Easy to deceive a person like that. Sometimes our bellies need to be empty and our plates need to be turned over and we need to be fasting. Oh, I said the F word in church. I just did. Fasting. Well, don't you mess with my food. Now you've gone too far. So those are some categories of people that are easy to deceive, and we should not be in any of them. So verse 5 gives us the first sign. <coughs> now, out of all these signs, we're just going to look at number 1. And verse 5 says this, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. The first sign of his coming is the rise of many false Christs. False messiahs are going to increase in, uh, you know, they're going to pop up everywhere. We've got a little bit here and a little bit there, but there's going to be all kinds of people claiming to be this person and that person is spiritual and claim to be Jesus. And I want you to understand something. This is not something new. Like I said in the introduction of this idea about signs, you know, these things are actually commonplace in the spiritual world. False messiahs have always been around 
plaguing God's people, and God's people, the Jewish people, have always had to watch out for them. Uh, Ever since they had been looking for a Messiah, they had to contend with false messiahs. The Jews have contended with false Christ, who claimed to be Christ for centuries, and the church has no shortage of of them as well. I'm going to cover some of them. Some of the early first and second century false Jewish messiahs. Now, when I begin to study this and talking about the false messiahs in Judaism, the number one they listed was Jesus because they didn't receive Jesus as Messiah. They rejected Jesus as Messiah. So to the Jewish mind, Jesus was a false messiah. We know he's absolutely 110% the son of God, the promised Messiah. They missed him on the first time, but they're going to catch him on the second time. And all of Israel is going to believe in a day. Read the back of the book. It's exciting what God does with the nation of Israel. But to them, they think, oh, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. When we look at the messianic prophecies, he's fulfilled every one of them. Yet the Bible tells us their eyes are blinded for a season so that we can be involved in the, what's called the time of the Gentiles. The ch- it's the church age now, and, and God has got Israel on the back burner. When he takes his church out, Israel will become front and center of the apple of his eye once again. So understand the Jews have had to deal with false messiahs claiming to be the Christ for centuries. Some of the early ones after Jesus came were Judas of Galilee. He claimed to be the Messiah. Then Thaddeus and then Simon of Perea, uh, Athrongi, Simon Barcova, Moses of Crete. They had a guy named Moses of Crete. And he said, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. Of course, all these guys try to draw disciples to themselves, try to, uh, you know, get a name for themselves, and they all fizzled out. And that's why as I read them to you, you're looking at me like we never heard of these guys. And you never heard of them because they didn't amount to anything. But everybody, everybody has heard about Jesus because he is who he says he is. Now, the church has had to deal with many who claim to be Christ in the cults. And some of them say they're the reincarnation of Christ. And I'll I'll run through some of them and you've heard of them. There's Krishna Venta. You know the Krishnas, Hare Krishna? Well, he claimed to be Christ in uh, 1958. There's Haile Selassie, uh, who started the Rastafarian movement, and many said, well, he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. You got Sung Young Moon, you know the Moonies. Maybe, who's old enough to remember the Moonies with their bald heads handing out flowers at the airports, right? Yeah, the young people are going, the whoies, the whaties? The Moonies, and that's Reverend Moon there, and he started his little movement, and they said, well, he's Jesus Christ. Jim Jones in 1978 said that he was Jesus. Uh, Marshall Applewhite of Heaven's Gate in 1977, he started that cult, claimed that he was Jesus. Charles Manson said that he was Jesus. David Schaller, a former Jehovah's Witness, started a cult, and he claimed to be Jesus. Currently, there's a guy in Queensland, Australia, named John Miller, Uh, Alan John Miller, look him up on the internet. He claims to be Jesus along with his wife, who is Jesus Jr. They they got a partnership going. But uh, all of these people claim to be Christ. You know, there's a few, David Koresh, you know, remember him? And he he, he claimed to be Jesus, and he wore glasses. Jesus wears glasses? What kind of Jesus wears glasses? That's like Jesus in a wheelchair. That's, doesn't work. So there again, we've heard of some of these, and they've absolutely blasphemously claimed, I'm Jesus, with glasses. And all of them amounted to nothing, and 
a lot of people don't know anything about them, and their movements have completely died out. Their followers were scattered when they were deceased, yet Jesus died, and his church has exploded all over the entire earth for thousands of years because he is who he says he is. But the Jews contended with false Christ, and the church has contended with false Christ. Now, there's two important things to know about the warning of verse 5, and I'm going to close down with this. But look what it says here. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So let's take a look at that. The first fact that I want to point out that Jesus says here is that there will be many. Say many. So far, there have been many, but we're going to see again an exponential rise in those who claim to be the Messiah, the coming Messiah. As the end draws near, you say, why is that going to happen? Because in desperation in the enemy's camp, he will fuel it to stir up confusion about the coming Messiah because he wants to muddy up the water. If everyone's just looking for Jesus and, you know, and there's, there's no other distractions from that, then maybe some people are going to you know, look for his coming and see it. But what the enemy does is he wants to confuse things and muddy up the water and distract people uh, from the truth with lies. So as his time gets shorter, he gets more desperate, and the tempo of how he brings these things will increase. He wants to confuse the situation and confuse the issue so much with so many different people and names and ideas to consider that all the new things become a distraction and Jesus just becomes an old thing. You guys are still talking about Jesus. There was this guy and there was this guy and, and we think it's this guy and out in the desert there's this guy and, and the world's going to be confused. So many means that there will be an exponential increase in what we've seen. It's going to get worse. Number two, these false Christs will have success in deceiving people. Now, look what it says. And they, what? Many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and will deceive many. So they're going to have some success. All the, all the ones that I just listed to you, how much success have they really had? They had a little following. They were exposed to be a sham, and then their, their little followings burnt out. There are some cults still in operation, but at this point, you know, they are really just deceiving people who are kind of imbalanced. Because, you know, you got to be a little bit, you, know, you got to be a few bricks short of a load to fall for some of this theology. And so they don't have big followings. They don't have big success. They're not challenging Christianity. But it says here in the last days that they will deceive many. So... You know, those who are willing to settle for a false Messiah can be kept lost in their pseudo-spirituality till the day they die. You see, there's something in a person that is willing to receive the false. It's something that's corrupt. Because all of us have a conscience and an inner witness. And Romans 1 tells us that even creation testifies about the creator and that there is a God. And then we got men claiming to be God and silly foolish, simplistic, imbalanced people fall for that stuff. But if many are going to be deceived, then the fact is that their level of sophistication will increase as compared to what we've already seen. I mean, are you kidding me? That apple white guy, Heaven's Gate cult, Charlie Manson, are you kidding me? Who would think that guy is Jesus? Come on, church. 
But it says here, many are going to be deceived. So that means they're going to be able to up their game. They're going to be more sophisticated than what we've seen already. And they are going to eventually, the scripture warns, do signs and wonders that are legitimate. Wow. These false prophets and these false Christ, you study the eschatology of the book of Revelation and you see what the false prophet does, signs and wonders and miracles counterfeit driven by demonic things and satan himself but they're going to increase their sophistication and they're going to be more slick and they're going to be more believable and matthew 24 24 warns us of this it says for false christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders did you hear that not magic tricks legitimate demonic spiritual things so as to mislead, listen, if possible, even the very elect. The word is saying they're going to be so sophisticated, so slick, so smooth in their speech, that if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit in us, they would be able to trick us. The devil has had no problems tricking people. The only people the devil can't deceive are those who are born again because the Holy Ghost is inside us. He's our inner witness, the referee of our soul, and he protects us and seals us and keeps us. <laughs> but these guys are going to be so slick and so good, and they're going to be so sophisticated and smooth of speech and be able to quote scriptures out of context, and if possible, they would be even able to fool the very elect. So the first sign is false Christs. We've seen them. As we see the tempo increase of their appearance, it will be a sign that Jesus is coming soon. There are many signs to cover. That's it for tonight. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for Matthew. I thank you for chapter 24. I thank you that the disciples took the risk to ask a question. And that we can all benefit from Jesus' response. Father, I pray as we study the word, as we study the prophetic, as we look at the multidimensional nature of the prophetic and the various fulfillments of the prophetic, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would begin to have a godly worldview of what's happening in the earth today. And God, as we go through each one of these signs, I pray that we would tuck these truths into our hearts and that we would look for your coming and we would look for the signs of your coming and stay alert and sober spiritually so that we would be the virgins who have oil in their lamps. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Give him praise tonight.